0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, O Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art ever present, and filleth us all things, treasure of blessings, and giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us of all impurity, and save our souls. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Today's lecture is going to be mostly about the separation of the soul from the body. What happens... Um, during the separation of the soul from the body and the church's teachings on the 40 days, we have 40 days, we have different um, designations of memorials that are done after a soul departs from the body on the first day, the third day, the ninth day, and the 40th day in the church. So I kind of framed um, what happens with the soul according to those different uh, prescriptions the church has given the priests. And the bishops to to use uh, to pray for the soul, and then we 'll talk a little bit about what we call the intermediate state of the soul and we 'll get into what that what you know the the definition of that and what that means, and all of that good stuff, basically what the soul is going to endure or how it 's going to live and where it 's going to live until the final resurrection when the soul when the body is resurrected and the soul is united to the body. So let's dive in. Um, just some pre- preliminary kind of things to say in the beginning. Um, the, this category that I put at the top of the page is that death is a mystery. Right? So we say death is a mystery because it is something that has been veiled by God. It's not something that is completely known to us it's been hidden from us because it is a great mystery and for our own salvation. So all that we know about the moments after death are revealed to us in Holy Scripture, and the services of the Church, the canons of the Church, and the whole experience of holy people and saints within the Church. But however, all we know, even in all of those categories, is only a dim shadow of the reality that we will experience. So an important point to remember are while there are specific things that we'll talk about in this, um, in this talk, it is uh, more or less a rule of the norm, but not all experience exactly what we're going to talk about. And as I go through these lists, um, I'll, I'll, I'll highlight to you things within the lives of the saints, and um, other experience in the church, where certain people do not, you know, experience these things exactly how they're laid out here in this format, right? Because death is a mystery, we cannot be over literal about everything that we talk about and about ever experience a revelation. So we can't investigate too much, and we can't be over literal in it. We have to respect the fact that God has left it a mystery. And so we're able to pry in as much as the saints have been able to give to us what's been handed down through the church. And also I should say that we're going to talk about certain things within this talk, not to bring uh, about any kind of despair, but that we should be able to be knowledgeable about these kinds of things that happen to the soul after death so that we can be prepared and enter as the saints say the righteous enter into death with joy. Okay. So the first thing we touched a little bit this a uh, little bit on this last week but what is called the hypostasis of the soul. The hypostasis basically by the father's means the existence. The existence of the soul but also more specifically the exist, the existence of the individual of each man and his soul. So when the soul is separated from the body, his hypostasis is not lost. His person is not lost. His identity is not lost. But it remains with him. Each person, each person is a hypostasis, and that hypostasis distinguishes himself from other people. Right? So we do not lose our individual individuality when we are separated from the body. Since we are formed, both body and soul, these two elements make up our identity or our existence, our hypostasis, since God united them in creation. We talked about this last week, how we do not believe in the Orthodox Church that the body is somehow a shell for the soul or a prison of the soul. This is what Greek philosophers Philosophized, um, but that the fathers distinguished these uh, beliefs from the philosophers in the early centuries of the church. That man is both soul and body, and this is his identity. For him to be separated from his body is an unnatural experience, it is not something that was intended in creation but is brought upon by man because of his disobedience to God. So this is not something that is a natural state. It's not something that we are supposed to experience, but it's something that we experience because of our fallen fallen, uh, state that we live in. And therefore, that's why it is so terrifying to us. So the soul does not constitute the whole of man, neither the body constitutes the whole of man. But both Act together and are formed by God in the womb at conception. There is not a time when the body lived, the soul did not, and not a time when the soul lived and the body did not. But every creation in the womb at conception is the formation of a new Adam by God. And instead of using the virgin soil of the earth, He uses the flesh and the Of of the woman, right, and the seed of man. And he breathes into it a soul. So, because of this unnatural uh, breaking uh, that was not intended to happen, we are fearful of it, right? And even though the soul is separated from the body, says St. John of Damascus, even though it's separated in death, the body remains, as does the soul but both always having one principle of their being and hypostasis. So the body still contains within itself the identity of man. The soul contains within itself the identity of man. This is why in the re- when, when we go and venerate holy relics of saints, or where we have some saints that haven't decomposed, is because their soul is still attached in some way mystically to their bodies. So don't, we don't become completely detached. Some of the fathers even talk about, and Hierotheos uh, Vlachos uh, talks about how even when the soul is, or even when the soul is away from the, uh, separated from the body, and the body decomposes, the soul has some still attachment to the things that remain of the body. And he says, just as a painter knows when he mixes colors together and puts them on the canvas, he still knows the elements of the colors that made up what he put on the canvas. And it's the same thing, he says, with the soul somehow mystically knows the elements that have decomposed into the earth that are still his body because he will be united with them once again. So we do not lose who we are. That's a a very important thing to understand. We do not lose who we are, but the soul carries our identity into the next life and our personality is not destroyed. So every individual is created instantaneously, with a soul and a body. The soul expresses itself through the body as the body grows. And when he dies, this unnatural thing happens where he is separated from the body and goes on with his personality into the next life. Everything that he has acquired here on earth, spiritually, goes with him into the next life. So St. John of Damascus, in the funeral service... He says, he writes this ode that we sing for funerals. Truly most terrible is the mystery of death. How the soul is violently parted from the body, from its harmony. The most natural bond of kinship is cut off by divine will. All right, so a few things. That he talks about this violently being parted from the body. That is, it's something that was never intended to happen. And also that the body and the soul together create a perfect harmony and a natural bond of kinship. And this is cut off by divine will. And we talked about why this is cut off by divine will last week. Why death has come into the world. It's because of God's providence and his love for mankind. It's because of our disobedience that death entered into the world, but God allowed it to enter for various reasons in his love toward mankind. One, of, one is that evil would not take on an eternal reign. Right? That sin could not live on into eternity. The other is that so when he is incarnate and defeats death, he thereby gives the power to every Christian to defeat death in his own body. And therefore, when a Christian experiences death, a righteous Christian experiences death, he, like the Savior, tramples down death. So this relationship is broken by force. And at the hour of death, St. John the Ladder says that the proud find out how poor they are only after they die. So those who do not think that they sin or do not think that they sin big sins and all of these kinds of things become very aware of it after their death. If they have not examined or searched their conscience while they are alive, they become completely aware of it after death because everything that is material begins to fade away and the soul becomes very sensitive to its spiritual condition. Many times in the lives of the saints and other uh, experiences in the church, our life is played before us in our eyes. And we see everything that we have done, everything that we have not confessed, everything that weighs the soul down becomes heavy on us. Our senses begin to open, and the earthly things we cared for in this life will be cast off, and we'll turn our attention towards the spiritual realm. There's a very powerful story that some of you have heard me tell before about Alexander the Great, who conquered all of the known world. And when he died, he asked for his servants to bury him, um, to put him in his coffin, and to cut holes in the sides of his coffin and put his hands out, so that when he was processed through the streets to his burial, his hands would be out of his coffin. And the reason why why he asked them to do this is because he wanted the people to know that although Alexander the Great, who had conquered the entire world, known world at the time, was going to the grave with nothing in his hands. And this is the reality of, of, of what it is. Does it matter whether we are rich or, or poor, whether we are kings or paupers, whether we are righteous or unrighteous, we will all end up in the grave? and we only carry on with ourselves the the spiritual treasures that we have heaped up in this life so before death the spiritual realm opens to us and many experience glimpses of the next life so some experience the appearance of saints or loved ones angelic orders or demonic powers many times though it's rare that loved ones appear to us on our deathbed Um, The saints tell us that the reason why God allows this to happen to us is that because a certain soul who is scared to pass from one life to the to the next, God consoles them with the righteous family members that they have to greet them and escort them from one place to the next. But this doesn't happen all the time. It's not something that happens all the time, but definitely it is uh, for sure that within the traditions of the church we have this squabble between angelic orders and demonic powers that come to us at the hour of death. So St. Gregory the Great, he talks about the case of, of, of a dying man who was close to death that saw a dragon coming to eat him. And he was unable to get the dragon away from him. But the dragon was, was unable to swallow his entire body. This is a spiritual experience that he is having at the transition from life to death. And the dragon puts, his head, puts this man's head in its mouth. But this man has monks who are around him praying for him. And they urged him to make the sign of the cross, but he couldn't. So he asked them to pray for him. And after a while, the man said, Give thanks to God, for behold, the dragon who was taking me to eat me has gone, and thanks to your prayers, he is unable to stay here. So there is these uh, experiences that are happening, and it's why it is so important that the prayers of the church are being read during these times, whether the Psalms are being read or the canons for the departure of the soul. It helps the soul transition from one from this life to the next life. At the hour of death, what is relatable to the soul will also draw near to the soul. So the things that we surround ourselves with in this life, whether they be good things or evil things, attract themselves to the soul that is attracted to to it, right? So if in the lives of very righteous people, the holy angels surround them and bring them into, into paradise. We see this in the, in the icon of the Dormition of the Mother of God, <coughs> that angels are surrounding her on her deathbed, and her, her son has come down to take her soul up into the heavens, and you see no demonic powers around her. Right, this happens in the lives of uh, many great saints of the church, but not to everyone, not to everyone. So, St. Gregory, um, in his dialogues, he says uh, an example. He says about uh, a rich man who was a slave to numerous passions. He said, A short time before he died, he saw hideous spirits standing before him, threatening him fiercely to carry him into the depths of Hades. The entire family gathered around, weeping and lamenting. Though they could not actually see the evil spirits and their horrible attacks, they could tell from this sick man's own declarations, from the parlor on his face, and from his trembling body, that the evil spirits were present. In mortal terror of these horrible images, he kept tossing from side to side in his bed. And now nearly worn out and despairing of any relief, he shouted, Give me time until morning. Hold off at least until morning. And with that, his life was snatched away. So the saints give glimpses of what happens to people who are unrighteous or did not live a spiritual life, and how they have attracted these demonic powers to them, and have no comfort at the passing from this life to the next. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, of this um, towards the end of the, the lecture, but first I kind of want to get into what happens to the soul's soul within the 40 days after death. And these, like I said before, is structured, uh, this, this part of the talk is structured on our memorials, what we do for the first, the third, the ninth, the 40th day memorial, and why we do them. So the first day memorial, we always serve on the day that the person had passed away. And this is because angels and demons greet the soul, as we talked about. The guardian angel of every man stands next to him, and those, like we said, that are attracted to the, to the soul or who have given themselves over to certain evil or good powers in their life begin to uh, greet and see these things in the next life. So Yirandisa Makrina, she says, "'Let us not allow our minds to wander away from God "'even for a second. "'The hour of death is very difficult.'" At that hour, angels run to take the soul. The demons also run with their manuscripts, and a battle takes place. Our guardian angel appears with his manuscript saying, this soul has confessed, it has these virtues, it has this, it has that. The demons also arrive stating their findings, and the soul is taken accordingly by the angels or by the demons. She also says in this uh, beautiful quote that, our guardian angel takes down, because our guardian angel is with us at all times, takes down every extra prayer, every extra prayer knot on our prayer rope, every extra prostration, every extra spiritual reading that we, that we make. All these things are recorded and, and used at the judgment of our soul. St. Macarius the Great also says um, that during this time, From the first day to the third day, the soul is allowed to wander on earth with its guardian angel for three days according to where the soul is attracted to or would like to go. This is reflected in the hymns of the funeral service where St. John writes about how the soul, when it's separated from the body, reaches out for men to help it, but it reaches out in vain because it can't be seen. And all of these things that... uh, that are in the Lamentations and uh, these beautiful hymns from St. John in the funeral service. So the soul is allowed to wander. Holy souls go to the churches and to the monasteries. Those that are bound to this life try to find comfort in the things of this life but can't. And one of the things that we talked about last week, one of the, the torments of the soul after its departure from the body is that we if we are had certain passions that we are addicted to that could only be be performed with the body the soul suffers because it is not able to use or practice these passions anymore so certain passions that might have given it relief at some point in life or distracted it at some point in life It is not able to find such relief or such distraction anymore. So the third day, the third day memorial, the reason why we have a third day memorial is because because this is when the soul ascends to heaven and a battle is is waged for the soul. This is when the soul passes through What the fathers have said are called the aerial toll houses or the taxing of souls or the toll booths. There's various different ways in which they talk about this throughout the writings of the fathers. But it's basically what St. Paul talked about as the demons and principalities of the air. And when we did our uh, lecture on... um, UFOs and extraterrestrial experiences during the Orthodox survival course, we talked about how the saints say, Do not look to the skies for, for signs and wonders because that is where the demons dwell. Right? So, this is where the um, soul is taken up into heaven by the angels, by its guardian angel, and the demons encounter it and uh, try their last attempt to snatch the soul away from paradise. So a few things about talking about the Toll Houses. I'm not going to really talk about like, why they exist or, or uh, give, give you all this proof that they do exist because I think it is very evident within, the, within Scripture, within the doctrines of the church, within the church hymns, and prayers that we pray very often That they definitely do exist And um, If you want to really dig into The proof of their existence This This is the book (laughs) That you That you look at So this is the Departure of the Soul um, By St. Anthony's Monastery And that's the preface What's that? The whole book is the preface to the actual Yeah, yeah, exactly Exactly
1: so this is—it's
0: all about not just the soul after death. It's just the toll houses themselves, right? In here, so various saints like Saint Theophon the Recluse say that those who are puffed up academics think that there is no are no toll houses, but yet they will encounter them and on their deathbed, right? So. Although we can be skeptical about them and maybe say they don't exist, it is nevertheless very evident within the life of the church that they do exist. But having said that, we can't be over-literal about them, as we talked about in the beginning of, um, of the lecture. Right? Some saints have, say that there's 20 toll booths in the air that we have to pass through. Others say there's 15. Some say that there's other numbers. Right? So there's not a fixed literal interpretation of the toll houses themselves. But nevertheless, as we'll go through here, you'll see that there is definitely a pattern that is displayed, that is carried out, and something that we should uh, definitely take into mind and know that we are going to experience. I haven't been going through any of these slides. There's a beautiful um, picture of a a funeral with a, a schema monk. The reason why I put this here is because on Athos, when uh, graves are dug up and the bones are put into ossuaries, they still name them, you know, Nikolaos, the monk, right? And many times in these monasteries, in the ossuaries, it will say something over the, uh, over the door or within it talking about waiting for the resurrection from the dead. So burial okay so it is also very evident within iconographic tradition on the judgment you always see these places where there's booths that demons are in and souls go through so we can't be overly analytical or too too literal um but we must, and we must go over this topic not to really cause distress, but sobriety, right? Of what we, what we will experience. So, first, we have to understand the, um, proper, experience, uh, the proper understanding of what, uh, or definition of what the tax collector is within a uh, patristic sense. Because many of the fathers t- talks, talk about this as the taxing of the souls. And so, why do they use this word taxing? So, tax collectors in biblical times and patristic times were the servants of publicans that would go out and, tax, and collect taxes from citizens. Many times they would overly collect, so they didn't have to turn in the money they overcollect and could take it for themselves. So they were unjust. They had a reputation for meddling in people's affairs trying to point and and find things to tax people for. They also were known for ambushing people on roads and going through their purses to try to get the money that they requested. And also for trickery. So the philosopher, uh, through Theocritus, he said that uh, fierce beasts in the mountains are bears and lions, but in the cities are tax collectors and slanderers. <laughs> All right. And St. Macarius um, the Great says that like tax collectors who sit in the narrow roads and seize passers-by and extort them for money, so also the demons watch carefully and grab hold of souls. So the reason they talk about these things as the, uh, you know, this time as the taxing of souls is because the demons fill all of these categories, that they are tricksters, that they accuse people of things they did not do. There's many times within the lives of the saints who are on their deathbed and talking as if talking to these demons and their, and their guardian angel. Saying things like, no, I did not do that. I did that, but I made a confession for it. You're making a false accusation of me. All of these things, right? So the demons are kind of going through the purses. They're ambushing people. They're trying to trick them. Everything that they can do in their last attempt to snatch a soul, going to paradise. So the taxing of the soul is the last attempt. They're confronting they are confronting past sins of, of, of the person, accusing it of his sins that is not committed, and trying to tempt it with passions it clung to in this life. So Saint Anthony the Great once reached the point of personally seeing such dreadful things. In his cell, he went into rapture and saw himself go out of his body and walk in the air, apparently led by angels. Some bitter and terrible demons prevented them from ascending to heaven and sought a reason for several deeds. Then those leading St. Anthony, his angels, fought with the terrible demons, saying that God had forgiven him all of his deeds from his birth and that they should only accuse him of what had been done since the time he became a monk. Then when they had accused him and not proven anything, his way became free and unhindered. Saint Anthony also talks about that during a night during the night a voice wakened him and urged him to go out of his cell and look. Then in fact he saw someone tall and hideous and dreadful who was the devil, standing straight with his hands raised, preventing some of soul, some souls from ascending and keeping hold of them and gnashing his teeth at others that had escaped and were ascending to heaven. There's a there's part of the life of St. Macarius, too, where he was ascending into heaven. And the, the demon came up to him and said, Oh, Macarius, you are so great. You, you, you uh, defeated us here on earth. And he, sa- and he was silent, and he raised higher. And the demon came to him again and said, Oh, Macarius, look, you even... You even outsmarted me when I was trying to trick you with pride. And then, and then he was silent and he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he ascended higher until he got into heaven and then he said, now I have defeated you. Right? So there's these different um, things that happen in the lives of the saints that definitely give a pattern to what is happening and what these toll houses mean. Some, like I said, have very specific toll houses we go through pride lust all of these different passions some do not some are like in the life of saint anthony or the life of saint macarius it all depends on the person and his experience but nevertheless we have to know that a battle is waged for our souls as we ascend to heaven after the third day and when we're talking about days obviously we're also talking about this is a mystery This does not mean that every person is going to experience exactly what is prescribed on these 1st, 3rd, ninth, 40th day to like 24-hour days on earth, right? But this is what the church has been given to us as a prescription to to pray for these souls. So those that have kept a blameless life, who have confessed and who have struggled in this life through the toll houses unhindered, The demons do not have power over them unless a soul who by free will has granted them authority to have power over them. So, if we have given away to a certain passion in our life that we haven't tried to cut off, we haven't confessed, to the righteous, the demons become, as St. Paísio says, barking dogs but with no teeth. The demons act according to the passions which is why we must take our time in this life to cast off our passions, our sins, so that we can pass unscathed through these trials at the end of our life. There's many uh, stories from the lives of the saints, like St. Gregory Palamas, for instance, where a huge light was shown after his, uh, after his repose and it burned off any demons that would come near him. So this is the fate of the righteous and can be our fate too if we take the spiritual life seriously we only give these demons power over us if we allow them to have power over us by um, being addicted to our to our sins and our passions and living in a corrupt state so our problem metropolitan Hierotheos says our problem is not to be scared of these tax collecting demons but as long as we live to cure our soul and our whole being from passions, to partake of the uncreated grace of God so that, they, so that the departure of our soul from our body may be a matter of joy and delight. Yerandisa Macrina also says, prepare your luggage, she says, for the next life. So do everything in this life that you can to prepare yourself and your luggage for the next life. Don't try to take with you sins and passions. These things will not stand up. Abba Dorotheos, a very early saint and a great ascetic, says that during this life the soul is comforted through being distracted by the passions. If we do something to comfort or to gratify ourselves in this life. It can feel great sorrow and dreadful pain but by means of the body and the passions, it can take comfort and ease this pain, right? So if somebody drinks because they're suffering or somebody commits certain passions because they're suffering, they're able to ease the pain of the soul because they have the body. In such a melancholic and frightful state, an individual is fed, drinks, sleeps, meets, and associates with friends. That is to say, he is entertained by those who are dear to him. Thus he is comforted, in part, and can more easily forget the deepest problem which worries him. But when the soul leaves the body, it is alone, with its own passions, and, in short, is always tormented by them. At this time the soul is burning with the annoyance of the passions. It is distracted by them, and cannot be mindful of God. This is a real tragedy, for at this time, because there is no body either, it cannot feel even the slightest comfort. This is why the fathers are so adamant about being watchful over oneself, to practice the nepsis of the church, to be watchful over ourselves, to practice the hezekiah of the church, to be silent, to know what is going on in our inner state, so that we are not met with surprises when it is too late, to always to remember our death, and which we'll talk about later at the end of this lecture, so that we are preparing always for it. We don't want to be caught unaware. So the toll houses have to be interpreted by these following four points that Metropolitan Hierotheos lays out. First, of its symbolic language, both in the scriptures and within the context of the writings of the saints, in the lives of the saints, in the hymnography of the church, all has to be interpreted through the church's experience of these things. That's number one. Number two is that there are demons, dark angels, who have freedom. And with God's permission, but also through the wrong use of freedom by man, they have been able to dominate him, right? So we give the demons uh, a free card to dominate us when we practice and are addicted to certain passions in this life or sins in this life. Number three, that demons have no authority over the men of God. All who are united with God have within their soul and heart the uncreated energy of God, which burns the demons. And number four, demons act by means of the passions. The fact that the passions cannot be acted out after the soul's departure from the body suffocates the soul. And finally, Metropolitan Herodotius says, when he's quoting uh, St. of Photiki, he says, One who loves God will not be in fear. For love casts out fear. He will freely pass by the rulers of this world. The soul of a man who rejoices in the love of God at the hour of death is lifted with the angels of peace above all the hosts of darkness. All right, so we only have to fear that which we allow to happen now in our lives. If we are struggling to overcome our sins if we are confessing them, if we are aware of ourselves, if we are practicing the asceticism within the church and taking care of our souls and bodies, then we pass through this trial of our life unhindered. But if we give the demons and rulers of darkness dominion over parts of our lives, then we will have to encounter them at this time, after the soul is separated from the body. So it is either now, we battle them now, or we battle them later, when we don't have so much power to battle them anymore. Because after a soul leaves the body, the church says it cannot ask for repentance. It is only through the prayers of the church that a soul finds comfort and is able... Um, to seek solace, you know, where where it is in the world beyond. So we have to take the spiritual life seriously. One of the uh, most detailed explanations we have about the toll houses is from a nun who was stuck in them and appeared to her elder to help ask her for prayers so that she would be able to ascend and pass through them, you know so there are different ways in which the church has interpreted this. there's different ways in which saints have dealt with these um, things uh, after after death or have experienced them in visions before death, but nevertheless, the pattern is that after you know this rough what we talk about you know kind of symbolically or Uh, I shouldn't even say symbolically, but uh, mystically, this third day, is that there is a battle and a taxing of souls. There is a weighing that happens. A guardian angel accompanies us. The traditions of the church and the fathers of the church talk about how even the mother of God herself uh, feared going through this stage in life and how she prayed for her son to deliver her from them, which is why in the Dormition icon we have Christ himself taking the soul of his mother to heaven. So every saint uh, has put this you know, in, in front of them as a, a means of asceticism to work, so that they don't have to encounter these things later after death. So the ninth day, the ninth day memorial. This day corresponds to the rank of the angels. It also um, corresponds to a vision from St. Macarius the Great. And when I'm talking about these things of St. Macarius the Great, an angel appeared to him, and he had different visions and different times in his life that revealed these things to him of life after death. When the soul, he says, is led through the heavens and the depths of Hades... So he says from the ninth day till the fortieth day, mystically, you know, these days, that the guardian angel accompanies a soul to see all of the heavens and all of the torments of Hades. And this is kind of a beautiful thing for the righteous, the fathers talk about, because in being able to experience the things of Hades and rise above them and conquer them, it is the final blow that the righteous have towards death and the devil. They become like Christ himself, who descended into Hades and smashed its gates and rose above it and was not able to be contained. So for the Christian, he is able to rise above. If he is righteous and lives a God-pleasing life, is able to rise above and to conquer the gates of Hades and the power of death and ascend above them, just as Christ did himself. And then the 40th day memorial is for what we call the Particular Judgment. There's two judgments that the church talks about. The Particular Judgment and the Final and Dread Judgment. The Particular Judgment is a judgment that the soul experiences on this um, 40 day, 40th day. And this is where it is decided where the soul is going to reside until the Final and Dread Judgment whether he is going to be in paradise or whether he is going to be in Hades. And he rests there in the final judgment. So this, But this state, the church says, is not fixed, but it can be changeable. That is, people in Hades can be pulled out of Hades and put into paradise during this period before the final judgment, which is why the prayers of the church are so incredibly important and it's why we pray for the dead, why we have all these memorial services, why you submit the names of the dead at liturgy. It's a very beautiful story in the life of St. Theodosius of Chernigov. He appears to a, a priest-monk of his monastery, the, the Elder Alexis of Caves Lavra, they were, they were revesting the relics of the saints. So they were giving him new vestments. And he appeared. He, he, was, he was sitting by the relics. <laughs> the elder was sitting by the relics during this long service, and he dozed off a little bit. And when he dozed off, the saint appeared to him and said, Thank you for laboring for me. I beg you also when you serve the liturgy to commemorate my parents. And he gave the names of his parents, the priest Nikita and his mother Maria. And then the elder said to him, How can you, O saint, ask my prayers when you yourself stand before the heavenly throne of God and grant to people God's mercy? The priest monk asked him that. And the saint said, Yes, that is true, but the offering at the liturgy is more powerful than any of my prayers." So this is why we do, why we have these uh, commemorations. Why it's so important to put the names of your departed loved ones and those that you know on the table uh, for for offering of the divine liturgy. So the state can be changed of a person and a place. And we'll talk about what this what place means. When we talk about paradise and Hades, what does it mean? Like where are we at? We'll get into that in a little bit. So the intermediate state of souls. This is basically what, this is the definition, or the intermediate state of souls is really, the, when the church is talking about this, is talking about basically where are, where are we residing from biological life into the, the time of the great and final judgment. The great and final judgment comes at the end of the world when our souls are united with, the, with our bodies, the general resurrection. This is when the, the fire comes out from the throne of God. This is when the, the lambs and the goats are separated on his right and his left. That's the final judgment. So when we receive this particular judgment, we exist in what the church calls the intermediate state of souls, where we are at until the final judgment comes. This is not to be confused with um, kind of a Roman Catholic idea of purgatory, which many times they'll talk about as being the intermediate state of souls. The church doesn't believe in purgatory, and we'll get into that later um, in a next lecture. But When we talk about the intermediate state of souls, we talk about how and where the soul is during this time between our particular judgment, our moment of death, biological life, and the dread judgment at the end of the world, at the apocalypse, when Christ returns. So according to St. Athanasius, this is when we receive either partial reward or partial torment, according to the disposition of the soul. So we do not receive our full reward, and those that are in torment do not receive the fullness of torment, because, like we said, the person exists of both body and soul. So we don't receive the fullness of all of this until the general resurrection at the great judgment. So into the intermediate state of souls, we experience either a partial reward or a partial torment. So the, a soul is judged at the particular judgment and dwells in paradise or is banished to Hades. And if you notice, all of this time, I have not been using the word hell and I have not been using the word the kingdom of heaven. That's because Metropolitan Hierotheos and many of the saints talk about how hell does not exist yet. It only exists after the dread judgment. What exists now is Hades where Christ descended and conquered. And the kingdom of heaven is opened to the sheep at the end of the world. And so we dwell in paradise. This is kind of a way to describe our partial reward. Like he says to the good thief, you will dwell with me today in paradise. So this terminology of quote-unquote places must be properly understood according to an orthodox understanding. It must not be taken to be literal geographical places. This is part of the mystery of life after death and we must leave room for this mystery. So many times we talk about how the soul goes up or a soul goes down. Goes up into heaven, goes down into Hades. There is some kind of connection there, some spiritual connection or spiritual plane which we don't really fully understand as a mystery. But nevertheless, at the same time, they're two different places. They're not two different geographical places. This is the only way that uh, we can understand heaven and hell through our own small little pea brains, right? The Fathers talk about how the fire of hell or the fire of Hades is not, may not be actual flames that we see when we light a fire in our chimney or in a bonfire, but is the only way that we can describe what is actually happening or has been revealed. St. Paul says that when he ascended into the heavens... he couldn't couldn't be able to uh, explain what he saw. And so there's mysteries beyond this life that human words just cannot uh, explain. We cannot comprehend them. And so while Hades and paradise are two different places, at the same time, they're not geographical places. St. Mark of Ephesus says that the dwelling place of souls does not mean a bodily place, but rather the intelligible place above sense perception, so something that we do not know and we cannot understand with our senses, something that we cannot perceive. Therefore, paradise and Hades exist to us because, on human terms, it is how we describe the life after death. However, they do not exist as, quote-unquote, places to God. Paradise and Hades also while being these quote-unquote places, these mystical places, these noetic places, are still also describing the condition of the soul. So we'll get really into depth in this in a lecture to come, but it's important that we talk about a little bit now because there is an understanding in Western Christianity that is much different than understanding in Eastern Christianity about what Hades or hell is. Specifically what Hades, yeah, so specifically what Hades and hell are. So Hades and hell, many times in Western theology, is described as a place that is without God and has this uh, flame that apparently God has created to torture souls that haven't conformed to his way and his commandments of life. This is not an orthodox understanding because we know that God is everywhere present and he fills all things. We also know that God is merciful and loving towards mankind and so why would a God create a hellfire to torture people that didn't conform to his way of life? if he's always searching for mankind's salvation and always loving towards him and has a disposition towards him and always wants him to come into paradise, why would he create a place for them to be cast, to be punished and burned for eternity? The Eastern understanding of what Hades and what hell will be is that it's not a geographical place, but it's a condition of the soul. So Metropolitan Herodotius says, we use the terms paradise and Hades to describe a particular way of life since the righteous partake of the glory of God while the sinners receive the caustic energy of God. So the, hell, the fire that we describe in Hades is the same experience that those experience in paradise. It is the energy of God. But according to our soul's disposition, we feel that energy in different ways. A light bulb gives off light, it also burns. Fire gives off light, it also burns. It has two properties. And depending on how we act with those properties or how we are in our disposition towards those properties, we either experience one or the other. We can experience light, Or we can experience being burnt. So Hades itself, while it is uh, mystically a place, it is still where people experience God. Souls experience God. But his love is taken as a caustic energy. This is evident even within the, the prayers after Holy Communion. The prayers before Holy Communion, Asking God not to burn and consume us as we partake of Him. Right? We can come before the presence of God unprepared and be burned and consumed. Like St. Paul says, some people have died because they have not prepared themselves. So God's energy is so incredibly powerful that it can be experienced as light and illumination and love and paradise. And at the same time, by a different soul, it can be experienced as caustic energy and burning and desperation. So this is the difference between um, a hell that is talked about in Western theology and um, a hell or Hades that is talked about in Eastern theology. So paradise is the dwelling place of the righteous and the foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. This is where the righteous dwell before the throne of the triune God. Hades is where the soul languishes in the presence of God and it becomes for him a caustic fire. And he is also tormented on account of his own passions. He says, uh, Metropolitan Hierotheos says, that if they, of souls, have purified have been purified, they will enjoy the illuminating and deifying energy of God. Well, if they have not been cured, they will experience the caustic energy of God. They will enter the dim and dark place which is called Hades. So in talking about all this death, how do we put it into practice in in our daily lives? The fathers uh, have always warned us and told us, especially the great ascetics of the church that lived in the deserts, have always told us to be to remember death, to keep it as a remembrance. Remembrance of death, it keeps us vigilant. Number one, it keeps us on guard. We don't know when we are going to die, whether it be next minute, three years from now, ten years from now. We do not know. So if we keep it in remembrance, it keeps us vigilant. It also leads us away from sin. In the Book of Wisdom, it says, in all you do, remember the end of your life, and then you will never sin. Because if we know that we have to answer for what we do, and we're actually, you know, remember these kinds of things, it will lead us away from from sinning. It becomes a supportive power in the spiritual life. St. John Climacus says, the memory of death is a daily death. And the memory of our exodus, that is our ascent you know from this life to the next, is an hourly sigh. So it helps us to carry on the spiritual life and be supportive of it. The memory of death also embraces many virtues. Saint Philotheos of Sinai, he says, it is the mother of prayer and of tears. It induces guarding of the heart and attach, detachment from material things. If we know that this life is going to fade away with us, if we know that if we, even if we are a Alexander the Great, we will not take with us anything material in this life, and that all we will take with us is the beauty and the treasures of the soul, that death helps us to remember, to keep, and to cultivate these virtues, so we can take it with us to the next life. As Yurandisa uh, Macrina said, to, pa- to, to you know uh, prepare our luggage to bring with us from this life to the next. So, in all this talk about you know sin and Hades and torment and all these kinds of things, you know it's very important for us, and 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 the battle uh, between. Uh, good and evil kind of this happens with the soul ascends into heaven with these uh, the taxation of the soul it's very important for us to remember especially uh, those of us who have come from protestant backgrounds or um, western um, christian backgrounds it's very important for us to remember you know what sin is in the church it's a sickness right (coughs) we live in a fallen world that is sick and we all have contracted this sickness. We all live with its, with the ramifications of it. We all live attracted to these sicknesses. And the church is a a hospital, a divine hospital that treats both the body and the soul, the whole of man, because because we are both body and soul. When we sin, we fall ill in the soul. We also sin and fall ill in the body. That doesn't mean that if we get a disease it's because we sinned. But nevertheless, it's because we live in such a a fallen state in a broken state that we have all of these uh, extra things that get loaded onto our back throughout our life. And And the church itself is a way for us to experience A holistic healing a holistic healing the reason why we come here and we are in the divine services and we have them so often is because this is what the next life will be like before the throne of God and experiencing him with real energy we will be truly before the triune God And so the more that we become accustomed to that experience here, the more our souls will be able to experience it as light and life in the next life. If we are away from it, if we are strangers to it, if we reject it, if we live our lives in this sickness without curing ourselves, in the next life, the love and the energy of God will be too much for us to handle and it becomes painful. And it can lead to a lot of suffering. Because of our own account, not because of God's account, because he wants to punish his creation, but because of our own account, we have been given the great blessing of having a life that we are able to pick and to choose and to have free will. And so, the fathers say, this life now is the training ground for the next. What we do to ourselves in this life will train our souls for what it will encounter in the next life. So, we heal ourselves. You know, if we're scared of these, uh, these tax houses, these toll houses that we talk about, if we're scared of them, then let's just encounter those demons now while we have time to repent. Let's encounter, let's look inside, as the Father say, to remember death, to look inside of ourselves, to live an inner life, and know what is going on in the heart, so that we can pick and take away all of these spiritual sicknesses that we have, so that when we pass on to the next life, all of these things will not weigh down our soul, and we will not experience pain and suffering because we neglected them so much in this life. But... May we pass into the next life, you know, with our guardian angel being able to be like, well, he, was a con- he confessed, and he went to liturgy, and he did this, and he did that, and, and he loved his children, and he helped a beggar, and all these kinds of things, right? So, just remember that when we talk about sin and punishment, that, like St. John Chrysostom says, and I said in the homily on Sunday, the church is not a courtroom, Right? We do not receive a sentence because of something that we did by, by law or legalism, but we receive um, a spiritual um, consequence, a sickness, because of the things that we, that we do. And the church prescribes medicine for us to be healed from them. So we have to heal ourselves now. We have to heal ourselves now. Is there any uh, questions at all about. Yeah. I have like 20 questions. <laughs> Are there <element? laughs>
1: So when when you said at the hour of death, what is relatable to the soul will draw near to the soul? What is that at the hour of the death? Is that immediately before death or after death?
0: Yeah, so this is like one of the things that we can't be like super strict about when it happens. You know, for some people, it happens in this kind of state when they're in between dying and living. You know, sometimes it happens to people after death. Sometimes we don't know because they're unconscious, you know, so it could happen many times in the lives of the saints It happens that they describe right before death and they start to see things
1: that made me think that like if you're an evil person then you, you're gonna be tortured while you're dying And if you're a, a righteous person you will die in peace that's how I feel like your soul will be related to either good or, or
0: evil. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly what the saints talk about. They talk about how God comforts the righteous at their death and, ha- and, and their sense transition and the separation of the soul of body is so unnatural. It's fearful. And so for the righteous... Because it has accumulated all of these virtues in its life and because the angels are attracted to this godly soul and rejoice, right? When a sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. Then uh, he has all of these angels around him and the transition from this life to the next life becomes very easy. Those that do not do these kinds of things, the transition from this life to the next life can be very hard and fearful, But at the same time, it's God's mercy, too. Because um, especially if uh, somebody experiences this dreadful state before they die, they still have time to repent. They still have time to recognize what is going on and to ask for God's mercy. In their own consciousness before they die. Yeah, because the soul is still conscious soul is still conscious
1: so uh, during the three days that the soul stays uh, kind of roaming on mm-hmm. earth before it, it do you think it's possible that we feel that soul as we're still alive here
0: yes um, and but you know the, the appearance of you know souls and all this kinds of stuff usually the fathers say happens to the, the righteous are able to do this so, the. In other words, we can't be too. We can't be like, um, you know, like ghost hunters. You know, um, we don't believe that souls are given the freedom to just roam around on earth wherever they want at any time. You know, but the church does say that within these three days that this can happen. Now, some of the saints talk about how right after, actually, many saints talk about how right after the soul is separated from the body that this uh, fight for the soul begins already, right? So sometimes there isn't this, uh, it's revealed that there isn't this time where somebody gets to roam around the earth with its guardian angel. Many times this is given to the righteous. Sometimes um, and many times, sorry, many times um, that this, uh, this battle already happens the moment after the soul is separated from the body.
1: Okay, so the tall houses and all that—it's not necessarily after the third day to right. the ninth day or or whenever.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's why I'm saying it's like when we talk about these days, we have to talk about them, you know, like mystically. They can't be these uh, structured things that happen. Uh, the the church needs structure and order. So in order to commemorate these things, in order to pray for these things the soul um, is going through, that's why the church has a structure, but. This is this is a mystery. It doesn't it's not put in stone. It's not something that every soul experiences exactly as another soul experiences. Yes, because we keep our personality and our existence, no two are the same. So we have like Saint Gregor Palamas, who had this blinding light come out. You know, this this was a saint that experienced the noetic light very often in his life. You know, the great champion that that laid all this out in theology. When he died, the noetic light was so incredibly powerful from his soul that, his, um, that people in Thessaloniki saw his soul rise to heaven, right? So, and this happened like in the life of St. Anthony. When he went to visit the ascetic in the wilderness, St. Paul of Thebes, he went at the very end of his life. And before he could get to the, the cave that the saint lived in, he saw his soul ascending into heaven with the angels, right at the moment of death, right? So this, isn't, this is not uh, a prescription that it's concrete and stone, but this is something that, you know, has been uh, kind of a, more of a pattern that happens with the soul after death. So
1: after, I'm sorry. Okay. I was just gonna
0: say his luggage was ready to go. His luggage was ready to go, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. so, so all
1: this... China means that we are pre-sorted. When we, when we go, then we said people go to Hades and people go to heaven. And then we're awaiting the final judgment. So mm-hmm. what more could happen in the final judgment that we're looking forward to? Because we already went through all the tests. and uh, yeah. so, so, so what's going to happen after?
0: So in between this time... Uh, in the intermediate state of souls the, the church can pray a soul out of Hades so it's not uh, it's not fixed it can be changeable so the church can pray a soul out of Hades and also we don't experience the fullness of paradise because we do not have our resurrected bodies which is why the most perfect saints of God like the mother of God he resurrected her body that she could experience the fullness of paradise.
1: But almost nobody's exempt from all that road. Even yeah. the saints went yes. through the same
0: yes. kind of. Thing. Yes, yes. So it would be proper to say that at the moment of death, the soul is separated from the body. The soul ascends either to paradise or descends to Hades. The body goes on the ground. And it's an in intermediate state, the souls are waiting the dead day of judgment with the resurrection of the dead being the resurrection of the dead bodies to reunite with the soul on yes. that day and then the kingdom of heaven or eternal hell right yes because this is In when the resurrected body yes because this is when the, 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 the yes the whole person is one right because we are only partial part of ourselves without the body right so the only ones with a body, or the mother, or Christ, the Mother of God, in the kingdom, basically. Yes. And Christ being the kingdom, and the Mother of God in the kingdom with Him, and she can kind of go around anywhere He commands her to go in her body, basically. But the only ones with souls, are, are the souls, are souls that are departed. When we so like when we receive our bodies, for instance, it will be like the risen Christ. Right. He's able to pass through the doors when they're closed, right? right? And uh, uh, at the same time. Thomas is able to push his hand into his right. side. So there's something very physical right. about him, but at the same time, not completely material about him. You know? So it's this re- a resurrected, glorified, new state of existence. And we talked last week about when Adam and Eve fell, they put on garments of skin. Right. And this, to the fathers, meant the garment of corruption. Right. So the body began, begins to decompose. Right. Right? When before, this decomposition wasn't, it didn't exist in our reality. So the body, like Adam's body, um, before the fall was like the risen Christ. Right? Right. So we do not experience the fullness of paradise, the kingdom of heaven, without, uh, without our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is why also, by the way, it, it is so um, critical for the Orthodox um, to teach uh, against cremation um, and why we have never... Uh, uh, really made any bending rules for it because this is, the body is the entirety of the person. You know, cremation comes from more pagan <coughs> cultures that, that thought of the body as a shell or a prison of the soul. And once it was freed, you know, is able to go beyond the material life. But the early Christians always believed that because Christ took on a body, became flesh, you know, God became flesh, that uh, obviously, the, materialistic, the material life is redeemed. So the entire body is redeemed, and the entire soul is redeemed. And this is the, 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 the whole complete person, both body and soul. So f- for, for us to just kind of discard the body and do whatever we want with it after death is, is also mistreating the person, right? Because there's this uh, hypostasis that is still attached to the physical body, even when the soul leaves. Does the Church, have any <laughs> specific prayers for uh, Orthodox who have, members sure, not or Orthodox who have been cremated, which has become very common to in the United States? Yes. So there are prayer. The, you can always pray the prayers of the departed uh, privately at home for deceased people who are not Orthodox. As you know, we don't really commemorate um, non-Orthodox in the church out loud at the liturgy or at the holy table. Um, We still pray for that. I have a list that I still pray for. But there's, uh, during the uh, proskermity service, there's a special, you know, there's special commemorations for only Orthodox living and departed. And, when, and, and after, uh, uh, right before communion, uh, it depends on the tradition. I do it before communion. Some people do it after communion. That all everything on the patent, all of the people that are commemorated, are put into the chalice. And the priest says, O Lord, you, um, by thy precious blood, wash away all the sins of those here commemorated. And they're united together in the body of Christ, in the chalice itself. So both the living and the departed, united together, um, asking for Christ you know, to wash away all of our sins. So this is not something that we do for non-orthodox, but I have names. I still uh, pray for for non-orthodox. And there's what's the acathist to the well, Saint Varus. Saint Varus. Yeah, saint Varus. There's an acathist to Saint Varus, and he is kind of um, been looked to as the patron saint of, of those who have family members who are not Orthodox. Um, they pray his acathist. Nice. V a r u s. Yeah, and I mean there's there's stories of of saints who have taken people who are um, suicide victims and things like this out of Hades. Saint John of San Francisco is known for doing things like this that have been revealed in Revelations. So you know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of work going on you know in the lives of the saints that you read about. Even, even uh, people who are terrible emperors, right. Trajan. Uh, like Trajan, uh, saints prayed for his soul out of, out of Hades, Saint right? St. Gregory. So there's all these, um, this is the compassion of the church, right? We don't want people to experience the love of God as a caustic fire, but as an illuminating light, you know? So the church is always offering up these prayers for, for the departed, for the departed. So any other questions at all? yes, answer that <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> no, I, I thought of
1: that question and then I thought of a possible <clears throat> answer I, I thought of the story in the uh, scripture about the, the rich man and Lazarus mm-hmm. and when he saw him mm-hmm. and uh, he was in Hades, and he saw him so, so even though the souls don't really have a physical shape but will we be able to recognize each other there like will the souls be reunited with life People who departed before yeah.
0: us, or yeah, yeah. So the souls take on the physical shape of the body, the fathers say, and it's very interesting. Some of the modern fathers talk about how that's the reason why, if you get amputated, you still feel feeling in your leg. They talk about how the soul has the 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 physical form of the body, and when this like. Um, what's uh, i'm trying to think of some of the homilies that i've read um but anyways they talk about how maybe this is kind of evidence that the soul it has this physical shape so it's able it, it's definitely the father said, it's definitely uh, recognizable you know when the saints appear when holy people appear they're recognized by 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 the faithful or whoever they're appearing to right so so they're they they take on still this the persona and their physical shape of uh of of the body um but obviously different right um there's obviously a a different uh illuminating aspect to it all that doesn't mean that same matrona i mean some um, usually she's painted blind in her icons but that doesn't mean that same matrona when she appears she's a blind woman she might you know but um, it, we, our bodies are, are, are also restored uh, at the resurrection. So um, to answer your question, yes, we'll still recognize people. And um, some of the saints, been, in a very beautiful way, talk about um, how all of the family members will recognize you as you come into the next life. And God, if you are, if you are righteous, and God uh, extends mercy to help you, to go from this life to the next life with more ease, that he will allow the family members to be the first ones to greet you. Specifically, the fathers talk about how the unborn, like unborn relatives, or children who have died, will be the first to greet their family members at the, at the gates of the kingdom. Right. So there's there's a and and obviously this is all mystical, right? Because even the unborn, we don't know what they look like, but at the same time, we'll be able to recognize them. Right?
1: That's why mistake can be. Some people think that the children, because they're sinless and pure, they'll be angels. In that. Right. But we can never be. I mean, angels no. are made of different things than we yes. are. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't transfer into it's angels. It's simply
0: not a metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, yeah, exactly. It's simply not a f- metaphor. It's because we possess the, our physical being, you know, that angels have never had, nor will they. So with that, let, it's, let us stand and close with prayer. It is truly me to bless thee, the Theotokos, ever blessed and all blameless, and mother of our God, more honorable than the cherubim, and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, who without corruption gave us birth to God the Word, and art truly Theotokos, thee do we magnify. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Amen.